Order members, it's now time for questions to the Minister of Agriculture, Environment and Rural Affairs, and I call Justin McNulty. Question number one. As Minister for the Department, whose responsibilities are most affected by the implementation of the Northern Ireland Protocol, I am fully aware of the difficulties it is causing, especially the impact of additional new rules and barriers they place on the movements of goods, products and live animals from Great Britain to Northern Ireland, to which I am firmly opposed. I feel that those checks on intra-UK moves are unnecessary and also totally unacceptable as they place Northern Ireland businesses and consumers in an unfavourable position. While the current easements on the movements of goods from GB to NI are welcome, they are only interim solutions to the problems associated with the withdrawal agreement and the protocol. The situation will become impossible once the grace periods that are currently in place, primarily for retail goods, come to an end. The issue of the control stop to the contractors appointed to the design and build programme has triggered a compensation event. The review process for the compensation claims is ongoing, but DERA have not formally issued with any verified costs until all claims have been submitted by contractors and reviewed in accordance with the contract. The additional costs to the department cannot be confirmed. I call Justin McNulty for supplementary. Thank the Minister for his answer. Minister, would you agree that the ports at this point just want certainty and clarity, and when will you say that that certainty and clarity will be forthcoming in terms of what their legal obligations will be? Well, I'd hope that we'll get that certainty and clarity over the course of the next number of weeks, because it is for the UK Government uh, to make that decision. And the UK Government have been very well informed uh, by the DUP ministers and the executive, I assume by others, uh, but certainly by the DUP ministers and the executive, as to the issues, the complications, the problems uh, that is coming about as a consequence of the protocol. The costs to businesses and therefore the cost to consumers, the constitutional impact, the democratic deficit that exists. Because I'm not sure if any other country in the world that has 26 other countries making the rules that are implemented in that country, and individuals in that country have no say over the rules that they're being asked to enforce. That's undemocratic. And the European Union, as I always thought, was an organisation which supported democracy. Therefore, the protocol is not something that we can move forward with. I call Liz Kimmins. And I disagree with the Minister that uh, no one had any say because the DUP have brought us to where we're at um, and, and this is an outworking of Brexit. Can the Minister therefore give us an assurance that the work on the construction of the point of entry facilities will proceed without further unnecessary and politically motivated delay? Well, the advice from the civil servants is that we can't proceed. Um, and then once the civil servants arrive at some different conclusion, then that is a decision for the executive, not for me as minister. Uh, so it is a controversial decision and therefore requires um, all of the executive's support. So I can confirm that I won't be uh, breaking the ministerial code by following your suggestions. I call Jim Allister. Uh, does the minister agree that the real and lasting cost of his implementation of the protocol is the distortion of trade arising from the intolerable impediments uh, uh, on trade within the United Kingdom. 
and the looming costs which have yet to land are, of course, arising from the EU diktat that the cost of all the checks must be passed on to business. Has that even been quantified, and how uh, disastrous will that be? Well, the cost that I have at the minute um, for uh, government alone, um, which would then be supposed to be applied to business, uh, would be around £25 million per annum. Now, the problem with that is that is not the cost for business, because businesses have to actually have people employed in producing these sheds and carrying out all of the background paperwork, and they have a whole series of work themselves to do, to the point where one of our, our leading retailers here, Marks & Spencers, who declared losses this year, indicated a considerable apportionment of that loss was to do with the protocol and how it affected their supply of food to Northern Ireland. So we we'll have a circumstance where, for example, um, we had 325 documentary checks a day here in Northern Ireland. In Rotterdam, the largest port in Europe, we had 125. That is how preposterous the imposition of the European Union has imposed upon Northern Ireland. And I explained how preposterous that was to Maros Sefcovic last Wednesday. And they seem to be hanging their hat on dealing with this by having the Swiss model, which I believe the Swiss may want out of, applied to all of the United Kingdom, which isn't going to happen in reality. So getting rid of the protocol is going to be the only solution for the people of Northern Ireland and the government need to act. Moving on, I call Matthew Toole. Question number two, Mr Deputy Speaker. It is primarily a matter for the industry as to how, make, how they make best use of the current set of trading arrangements. Invest NI continue to provide support to Northern Ireland exporters. I have been very clear in my view in discussions with government that the protocol causes significant difficulties for Northern Ireland business because of the trade friction introduced on goods moving to GB to Northern Ireland. And as GB is our largest market for sale and supply of goods, we need frictionless trade with GB in both directions. Furthermore, we have to have a say in the agri-food regulations that impacts businesses and consumers in Northern Ireland. Minister, since the end of the Brexit transition period, exports, food exports from Great Britain to the EU have fallen sharply. They have frequently been delayed and stuck in warehouses uh, with produce going out of date as quickly as the average DUP leadership. Uh, but exports from Northern Ireland going south uh, and beyond into the wider EU market have shot up. Last week's uh, statistics from the Central Statistics Office show exports from Northern Ireland doubling Mr. Deputy Speaker, by both volume and value. Meanwhile, question, food producers here have unfettered access into Britain. Minister, acknowledging we need to st uh, streamline east-west goods transit, why do you want to deprive our amazing food producers of one of the most advantageous export positions on the planet? Because uh, I have described the protocol before as um, something which gives us a, a, a win, in that we do get that export trade. Uh, but in exchange for that single goal that is scored, we're taking about six goals the other side uh, on our imports. And the consequence of it, Mr. Speaker, is that those businesses can't get the goods in to actually to carry out their manufacturing process without delays, without additional costs. 
It makes them more uncompetitive. So the, the delusion that it is a win-win circumstance is, is just that. It is an absolute delusion. We are taking a battering as a result of the protocol. And that battering is because of the imports and our reliance on over 50% of our imports coming from Great Britain being disproportionately affected. And if the member is, is operating under this delusion that whenever these grace periods ends, that having 15,000 checks per week at the ports in Northern Ireland is something which is positive for the people of Northern Ireland, then he really is living in cloud cuckoo land on this one. I call Emma Sheeran. I thank the Minister for his answers thus far. The European Commission have called for cattle farmers in the north to be included in the Irish grass-fed beef PGA application, a move that would help to ensure that Ireland is recognised as producing the most environmentally climate-friendly beef in the world. Minister, do you agree with me that this provides us with another important opportunity? And obviously, we heard the good news today about Deal Farm that the protocol has brought to mitigate the disastrous consequences of Brexit for our farmers, such as those included in the trade deal with Australia, which you obviously oppose. Well, you see, the disastrous consequences are related to the protocol, not actually to Brexit. And the opportunities to sell food to our main market, GB, are actually stronger now as a consequence of Brexit. And because of the issues um, that will uh, inevitably come about as, as, as it becomes more difficult for the EU to export goods to Great Britain, that creates an even better opportunity for us. And just remind members, the country that pays most for beef in the European Union is the United Kingdom. So, you know, you can chase pots of gold at the end of rainbows elsewhere. I'd rather actually use the certain market that we actually have on our doorstep that uses exactly the same standards as we do, that has the same taxation system as we do, and has the same uh, regulatory bodies as we do. And if we have got an excellent market there, why would I throw that away for the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow that Sinn Féin are trying to bluff the community exists? I call Alan Chambers. Thank you, Mr Deputy Speaker, and I thank the Minister for his answers thus far. I could ask the Minister why we have still to see the small print on the agreed Australian-UK trade deal. Given the details that have been released, how beneficial might it be to Northern Ireland food producers? It's probably not beneficial to Northern Ireland food producers, but more than likely it's beneficial to uh, other businesses and other industries. Uh, but for the Northern Ireland food producers, uh, it'll be a challenge. Uh, but nonetheless, that is a challenge that we will have to rise to, and it is a challenge uh, that is brought about as a consequence of uh, the, the deal that has been done, and there will be more deals done. Let's be real. There will be more deals done uh, with other countries, with the Mercosur countries, with North America and other places. Now, the attitude that the UK government have in terms of Australia is that Korea and China's demand for beef is of such um, significance and growing that there will be very little additional beef or lamb come from Australia um, to the UK. Now, that remains to be seen. The argument that I was making with them is that we have a vibrant rural community we had a vibrant coal mining community in the uh, United Kingdom, and we had a vibrant car making community in the United Kingdom. And the consequence of not looking after those industries led to 
um, estates where people had large spread unemployment and led to a degeneration in those areas. And I don't want that happening in our rural communities, and therefore I urged caution on the Australian trade deal. Could I urge everyone to address the chair so that their comments are picked up with the microphones? And I now call Martina Anderson. Jimmy Algott, Cash Dever Tree, question number three. Following the discovery of the illegal waste site at Muboy, then Environment Minister Alex Atwood commissioned an independent report from Mr Chris Mills, the former director of National Resource Wales Agency, to carry out a review of the waste disposal at the Muboy site and the lessons learned for future regulation of the waste industry. The Mills report presented 22 recommendations, 21 of which have been accepted and implemented by DERA, formerly the DOE, with the aim of creating a waste sector in Northern Ireland that complies within the law, protects the environment and underpins resource efficiency. The full report is available on the DERA webpage and my department has put in place a range of legislative policy and process measures to ensure more effective regulation and enforcement to prevent illegal waste dumping. For example, there have been legislative amendments in the Waste Management Licensing Amendment Regulations Northern Ireland 2015 to tighten the requirements around the technical competence required by operators to hold a waste management license and to expand the list of prescribed offences to be taken into account when determining whether someone is a fit and proper person to hold a waste management license. The only outstanding recommendation from the Mills report is Recommendation 9, which relates to retrospective planning permissions, and that was transferred to DFI in 2015, along with the planning function. I call Martina Anderson for supplementary. Uh, going me, August. Minister, as you know, it took nine warning letters, 17 notices, 42 inspections before the entire site of Maboy was forcibly closed. And that was after two million tonnes of illegal waste was dumped there. So, Minister, given that the site is adjacent to the River Fawn, which is a major drinking water source, as you know, for dairy, when will you advance the public inquiry? into the allegation that a blind eye was turned on that site uh, into alleged criminal activity, um, given that this Assembly called for such a public inquiry seven years ago? Well, you know, we have the Mills report, and that was a piece of work that was actioned by the then Minister um, to identify the issues, identify the problems, and also identify the solutions. We have followed the recommendations of that report, and my focus is on actually ensuring that we provide safety when it comes to the drinking water in, in the River Vaughan. So there is testing that is carried out on a weekly basis uh, to ensure that the water quality remains good, and it does. And there is a course of work um, that we are looking at uh, developing, uh, which will ensure that uh, the waste material that, that is there is made safe and made safe for generations to come. And that's where our focus should be, actually on taking actions which deliver something, as opposed to having you know, more and more retrospective looks at what went wrong. We never would know what's went wrong. We never would have a report identifying the problems. Um, so yeah, that's what my focus is on actual delivery, uh, not, not looking for what the problems were when we know what the problems were. I call Mike Nesbitt. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Grateful if the Minister could tell how so many similar illegal dumps have been identified in recent years and whether any have led to uh, successful prosecutions. I haven't got the figure for how many uh, similar illegal dumps were. Um, there was none of the scale of this. 
Um, now, I do know that there was some 20 dubs whenever I was last minister uh, in 2010. Uh, there was 20 dumps then, which involved illegal waste that had came from across uh, the border in the Republic of Ireland. And I engaged with the Irish Government Minister at that time, Eamon Ryan, and we formed an agreement to repatriate that waste. So I was somewhat shocked when I came back into office to find that um, only around half of that uh, had been dealt with, and there were still about 10 sites where repatriation hadn't taken place 10 years later. Uh, so I believe that the Irish Government have a duty to honour the agreement that was made and repatriate waste that should never have been uh, in Northern Ireland um, and put into illegal dumps in the first place because they weren't doing their job right. And if it isn't done, um, then it's a matter for us to raise with the European Commission. I call Pat Simplone. Thanks very much, Mr Deputy Speaker. Um, just as the Minister was touching on it there, his, his work with uh, Minister Eamon Ryan, uh, could the Minister update us on uh, current collaborations between both jurisdictions, uh, in particular the, the meetings that he has had with the, the current Minister, in regard to cross-border waste crime? Thank you. Well, there is an agreement between both ministers that it's unacceptable, and it'd be unacceptable if waste is travelling from Northern Ireland to the Republic of Ireland as well. Um, so there needs to be good information flow is taking place, and if there's identification of that taking place, then we need to be cracking down on the individuals involved. Waste crime is a very lucrative business, and the people who engage in it um, are not often, are very often people who engage in criminality in general. Um, therefore, it is incumbent upon us to ensure that this element of criminality uh, is something that we clamp down on, and that involves um, cooperation with our neighbours. I am very happy to cooperate with neighbours on things which are of mutual benefit. Call John Blair. Mr. Speaker, thank you. And can I say, in, in relation to, to pollution closer to home, it has emerged to me through, through uh, written questions and other queries that the Environment Agency has uh, taken Northern Ireland's sole water provider, Northern Ireland Water, to court 73 times since 2017 over pollution incidents. Um, what urgent action may I ask of the Minister taken to ensure that that public body causes no further pollution incidents in this jurisdiction? The question is wide of the original question, but the Minister may wish to comment. Well, I suspect that if you wanted to ensure that's the case, you'd need to give Northern Ireland Water a few billion to spend on infrastructure, because that's the reality. For years, we didn't spend money on water and sewage infrastructure. Um, whenever the troubles was going, we were paying for um, police officers for, uh, uh, overtime. We were paying for, paying for uh, rebuilding buildings which had been blown up. <coughs> And there was some investment in roads, there was some investment in schools, there was some investment in hospitals, but there was very, very little investment in water and infrastructure. So we have been left, I, I take this right back to the Troubles, we have been left with something as a consequence of the Troubles that is impacting our environment and is now impacting particularly young people who want to buy homes in that a lot of towns that they would want to buy those homes in, they can't build the houses because there isn't infrastructure to support it. Moving on, I call George Robinson. Question four, Mr. De Deputy Speaker. 250 Deira staff were located in Ballykelly House when it opened in May 2018, and since then, a further 87 Deira staff have relocated to Ballykelly, bringing the total to 337. The department also has plans to re relocate a further 54 posts during the 2017 2022 mandate. 
which, when filled, would increase the staff complement to 391. The need to relocate these further posts will remain under review. I call George Robbins for supplementary. Thank the Minister for his reply. Minister, the Deer headquarters in Ballykelly, which I, I intensely lobbied for, is an impressive building. To use it to the greatest capacity is essential, but it also plays a significant economic role and job potential to Ballykelly and the wider North West area. So, Minister, will you undertake to optimise the use of the Ballykelly headquarters where possible? Yes, we can do that, and you know th that has been the case to this point. So it, it is operating um, well. It has good numbers operating in it, and we intend to, to utilise it fully. It is one of our more modern, environmentally friendly, um, economic buildings to run, um, because it is built to modern standards and specification. And uh, that is certainly something that we will look at for other parts of the estate as well. I call Karen Mullen. Can the Minister outline what measures are in place to ensure that employees have the opportunity of relocating to Ballykelly? Well, there's been um, a, a, an effort um, from the outset to ensure uh, that employees did move to Ballykelly. Uh, without forcing people to do it against their will. And, uh, that has proved very successful, and as I indicated, the numbers um, is a demonstration of the success of it. I call Rosemary Barton. Thank you, Minister, for your answer so far. Minister, uh, can you give me advice as to what the final number of posts that, that have been relocated to the forestry headquarters in Enniskillen are, and the final complement of staff in these posts in Enniskillen? I haven't got the actual figure, but uh, it is Forest Service um, headquarters now, and, and they have um, got a, a, a substantial cadre, um, certainly three figures of staff, um, based uh, at Enniskillen. And uh, that, again, is, is something which I view very positively. Um, a lot of our um, deer of forestry uh, would be in the west of Northern Ireland, so ha having the headquarters uh, is absolutely rational. Nicole Kelly Armstrong. Thank you very much, Deputy Speaker, and thank you very much, Minister. Minister, what preparations are your, or is your department making for alternative or flexible working arrangements, including working remotely post-COVID? And can you confirm what protections will be put in place for your staff to ensure that they don't suffer from living at work syndrome, um, where their mental health is um, hindered because of the amount of pressure they have for working additional hours? I would suggest that DARE was probably the most flexible department when it came to dealing with COVID and with identifying means of people working from home. Uh, we have a lot of experience because we had Belly Calais and uh, Klondike and, and Dundonald House and a whole series of buildings uh, <coughs> where we had uh, the digital communication already in place. And we're very quick to, to ensure that people had uh, the equipment uh, to allow them to work from home. I do think that, you know, with the double vaccination, uh, for people in bars and restaurants and schools and other workplaces, I think that, you know, getting people back into the civil service workplace uh, is something that should be happening. It was raised at the last executive meeting. Uh, they're working pretty closely in conjunction uh, with what is happen happening um, in Whitehall. 
uh, but I do think that it is now time uh, for a lot of people uh, to be coming back to the offices again, and whilst working from home has worked to an extent. And going forward, there are lots of opportunities for working from home, uh, which will be good for um, reducing our requirement for office buildings and reducing cost of travel and the impact on the environment. Uh, nonetheless, we need to ensure that we are getting maximum efficiency from our civil servants. And consequently, if that involves them coming into work, then that's where it should be, as opposed to be working from home in those circumstances where it's negative. Moving on, I call Keith Buchanan. Thank you, Mr. Deputy Speaker. Uh, question five, please. Very pleased with the findings of the evaluation of the soil sampling pilot schemes, which my department successfully piloted. The pilots include soil collection and analysis of over three uh, water catchments, Upper Ban, Coolbrook, and Strudel, and one open element that was available province-wide. In addition, lidar risk map mapping was provided to farmers in Upper Ban and parts of Coolbrook. The evaluation of the pilots highlighted a number of key findings, including that provision of individual field information for farmers helped to drive behaviour change in relation to nutrient, man nutrient management practices. Applying nutrients to meet crop need is a central tenet of why soil testing and nutrient management planning are important. Improved nutrient management can contribute to improved water quality and can also have economic benefits for farmers. I believe that an NI-wide programme could provide government with invaluable baseline information for prioritising future interventions. Collectively, the pilots constituted a publicly funded £2.261 million intervention, which are worth 1,613 farmers with fields spanning 49,711 hectares, had soil samples collected and analysed. These results from piloting approach are helping to inform future direction and policy development in relation to soil health and future farm support measures. Officials are therefore working on a business case for a potential NI-wide soil nutrient health scheme. The scheme would provide farmers with nutrient status of their fields, which would assist them to make best practice decisions with regard to nutrient requirements. A baseline on Northern Ireland soil status could then be used for spatial nutrient management, planning and to inform the development and implementation of future agri-support schemes. I call Keith Buchanan. So far, uh, I would also agree with the Minister that better soil and nutrient management is key to farmers, and obviously this pilot has a very important uh, role in, in assessing the value of soil testing. Given obviously the need to increase a farmer's bottom line and protecting the environment, Minister, what is the timeline to roll this out? Uh, obviously, you refer to the rest of Northern Ireland. What is your timeline on that? Well, in terms of the soil evaluation, um, it is critically important. I believe moving forward, if we are going to ensure that, uh, that we can you know, meet the challenges for, for, for the environment and ensure that our water quality is, is, is as high as possible. And I know the member represents um, you know, the Mid-Ulster area, which has a large swathe of Loch Ness around it. And you know, Loch Ness has suffered from eutrophication as a consequence of phosphate runoff um, from the land. And therefore, farmers applying the appropriate amount of phosphate, whether that be through slurry or fertiliser, is something which is going to be of huge benefit because that will be utilised on the land without the runoff ending up in the water, and they will still find optimum growth. 
So we're looking at a five-year scheme, the cost of which would be £37 million, and we're currently working up the, the, the business case uh, to ensure that we can move ahead with that as quickly as possible. Um, I would hope to be uh, able to do that, um, either start that later this financial year or certainly in the next financial year. Nicole Claire Bailey. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Um, Minister, back in 2016, the Sustainable Agricultural Land Management Strategy report stated that 98% of Northern Ireland soils are inadequately analysed every year, and 82% of soils were below optimum fertility. Have those statistics improved any since? That's why it would have been great to have someone like me as, as Minister over the course of the last few years, as opposed to have having the Assembly crashed and not operative, because those three years were wasted years. And that is the consequence of not having devolution, is that everybody suffers in Northern Ireland, including the environment. I call Sean Lynch. Minister, I want to welcome the result of soil sampling that showed that soil management has improved by 60%. Do you have the capacity and resources to continue with catchment-based approach? Well, we have the capacity um, in terms of, of the skills that, that exist to, to, to do this work. Um, the resources something which we will continue to work with the Department of Finance to provide. But I hear people talk a lot about the environment, um, and I hope that they will be as good at talking about the environment uh, whenever this department is seeking money to protect the environment, and that they will support the case that this department makes to the Department of Finance uh, to achieve that. And that is the end of our period of time for listed questions. Uh, we will be shortly moving on to topical questions, so just take our ease for a few moments. And I call Matthew O'Toole. Thank you uh, very much, uh, Mr Deputy Speaker, and uh, thank you for your patience as I made my way quickly into the room as we uh, try and play musical chairs with these restrictions. Um, can I ask uh, the Minister further to his uh, answer to me earlier on? He said he acknowledged that there were wins for food producers in Northern Ireland in relation to the protocol, but he also said there were issues we need to, that need to be dealt with in terms of east-west movement. I agree on both of those things. Can I ask him, will he commit that if the European Commission and the UK can work together to mitigate movement of goods from east, west, uh, east to west. He will ensure that we maximise opportunities under the protocol for our food producers. Well, I think the, the fundamentals of the protocol um, relate to uh, number one: um, is it uh, a democratic action? Does it change the constitution? And it does change the constitution. And therefore, if you want to change the constitution, you should ask the people. So if the member is a Democrat, he will want to ensure with me that either the people are asked to support this protocol um, by referendum, or indeed that we will remove the protocol and find another means of doing things. And there are other means of doing things, and I have committed um, that I want to find a solution, and I believe that the solutions exist, and I put one to Mara Sefcovic last Wednesday, that I want to find a solution which will ensure that we protect the single market, that we will not have um, barriers on the island of Ireland, 
nor indeed will we have barriers in the RIC. And all of those things are entirely achievable if the European Union wants to be entirely reasonable as opposed to being entirely unreasonable. Thank you, Mr Deputy Speaker. Um, can I deduce from that that the Minister believes that he would like Northern Ireland to continue to have, unlike Great Britain, unfettered access into the European single market because the Minister acknowledges that that is a good thing. And while we are on, of course, democratic accountability and referendums, I am duty-bound to point out that the people of Northern Ireland voted Remain. But would he agree with me that continued access to the EU single market for our food producers is a good thing? Uh, therefore, the, the nonsense of the argument that the DUP brought about this uh, is entirely wrong, because if every single person in Northern Ireland um, had voted not to have Brexit, um, the majority in the United Kingdom um, chose that we were having it, and that was a democratic decision of a country. And whenever the question was put, the question was not put, do you believe that Great Britain should leave the European Union? It was, do you believe the United Kingdom should leave the European Union? And therefore, uh, that should be the United Kingdom that leaves the European Union, and that leads to us to this particular circumstance. The protocol was put forward as a solution. Instead of that, it is a barrier. The protocol ensures that we do not have the trade existing uh, with, between Great Britain and Northern Ireland that previously existed, and consequence of that is that it's driving up costs. And if anybody is out and about in businesses now, they are telling you that costs are going up on a very regular basis. They are telling you that goods that they previously had are not available. That is not good for the people of Northern Ireland. And I would encourage my colleague from South Belfast, instead of pursuing this agenda that, you know, the protocol is good and the rigorous implementation of it is good and all of that there, to recognise that it's not good and recognise that we do need solutions which are different and support us in getting those solutions and support us in going to the European Union and saying this is wrong and they are hurting the people of Northern Ireland and they are in particular hurting the people who have the lowest incomes in Northern Ireland who can ill afford uh, to have their food costs driven up as a consequence of the protocol. Mark Durkin is not in his place. I call Thomas Buchanan. Thank you, uh, Mr Deputy Speaker. Minister, while folk on the other benches are seeking to talk up the protocol, can you give us an update on the issues surrounding pet travel within the UK as a result of the protocol? Well, the expectation that uh, we should be um, treating animals for tapeworm and indeed for rabies uh, from the European Union uh, was put back in the first instance to the 1st of July. Um, I chose um, to defer that further to the 1st of October um, because, again, we need solutions. And no one but no one can argue that this poses a threat to the single market. Doing what the European Union do wants us to do um, poses a threat uh, to people who are disabled and that they're not able to get their guide dogs. Doing what the European Union wants us to do poses a threat uh, to families uh, who have family in Great Britain and who travel with their dogs to see the, the, their families in Great Britain. 
and doing what the European Union wants us to do imposes an unnecessary medical intervention on animals that don't require it. I think that we should recognise that if you haven't had a disease in the country uh, for 99 years, then we don't need to be bringing in rules um, for, to keep that disease out of the country. And that's the case for rabies, that it hasn't existed in either Ireland um, or Great Britain or indeed Northern Ireland over the course of the previous 99 years. Thomas Buchanan for supplementary. Thank you, Minister, for his response. Indeed, I have a constituent who have expressed concern about bringing their animal in from Manchester, a dog with them, and the exorbitant cost that it was alone to get all of these tests done. Would the Minister therefore agree that the requirements, especially for rabies and tapeworm treatment, are totally unacceptable and actually counterproductive and present animal health issues? The member is absolutely right. They are totally unacceptable. Uh, but what is also unacceptable is that whenever this is pointed out, you meet with a degree of inflexibility to find the solutions. So, you know, our chief vet and the, the UK chief vet um, are engaged with the European chief vet. And the vets all know, the vets all know that this is just a nonsense. But the politicians aren't allowing it to change. And I think that's very regrettable that even when you point out things which are entirely reasonable, that the European Union engage in a way which is entirely unreasonable. And I call Sinead Bradley. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. And Mr. Speaker, whilst I'm tempted to draw the Minister on his comments about asking the constitutional question, I, I, won't, um, I won't be tempted, and I'll stick to my original question on this. Um, would the Minister like to join with me in congratulating Dale Farm on winning a significant contract with the firm, the EU firm Arla, I believe they're based in Denmark, for the delivery of whey protein. And does he accept that this contract would not have been achievable without the protocol? Well, I congratulate Dale Farm um, if they have achieved something on, on the back of the protocol. Um, and I commiserate with the many thousands of business who are damaged as a consequence of the protocol. Thank you, Minister, and I note how swift your answer is and uh, short on detail. Dr Johnson was quoted in the Farmers' Journal as saying the protocol has strong support within the agri-food sector in Northern Ireland, simply because we recognise that without it we would be in great trouble. Does the Minister refuse to recognise that the protocol is the key to an economic driver for the agri-food sector here in Northern Ireland? Uh, no, absolutely not. And what Dr Johnson didn't uh, point out was that uh, the beneficial impact that uh, he, he's identified for the dairy industry um, doesn't apply with the beef industry, nor indeed with the chicken or pork industry. So, for example, um, in Northern Ireland, Foil Foods and Dungannon, um, the companies there import tens of millions of pounds of beef from Great Britain for further processing here, which goes back to Great Britain. And that is impacted as a consequence of the protocol. The same applies to chicken, the same applies to pork. And these are important elements of ensuring the viabilities of the beef industry, of the chicken industry, and indeed of the pork industry. 
So if you want to, you know, grab onto one particular element where the protocol has been beneficial, that's absolutely fine. But you know, why ignore the many thousands of companies, whether they're companies that are importing plants uh, for sale in our nurseries, whether they're companies that are importing trees to, that we're going to plant in Northern Ireland and ensure that we protect our environment, companies that are importing hedges. I can't buy a hedge in Lancashire, but I can buy it from Latvia. Sorry, the product that is growing in a similar environment and bred in a similar environment is the product which will be best placed to suit Northern Ireland. And our farmers who previously were selling their bulls in England can't sell them anymore because if they take them there, they have to stay for six months. No reason for it. Farmers who have bought sheep were left stranded in Scotland, causing them huge problems. And of course, the eel fishermen um, have their own problems as well. So the problems are just so extensive. If the member wants detail, she so can get an overload of it very quickly. And now called Rachel Woods. Um, Mr Deputy Speaker, Minister, last week your department reported that the carbon reduction levels in Northern Ireland were reduced by an embarrassing amount of 1%. Can I ask you what measures you're going to implement to ensure that this 1% is worked upon and we make necessary reductions beyond that? Yes, absolutely. Um, obviously, we have our climate change legislation, uh, which has been sitting with the executive um, to bring forward. Uh, but the legislation in its own uh, will not actually... Um, ensure that we reduce carbon by the amount that's required. Uh, we actually need actions, and the actions that we will be taking will be contained within our green growth policy. And therefore, we will be continuing to work extensively in the development of that green growth policy. One of the things that um, my officials are currently working on is the funding to support this. And we're looking at putting in a request to the Department of Finance um, over the course of the next number of years for around £100 million per annum so that we can seriously tackle the issues of carbon reduction. Now, all of the folks who have been so keen uh, to show their green credentials um, in the Climate Change Bill, it will come to them to identify do they support the DERA in their request and will they have the green credentials then to ensure that DERA does get the finances to actually take real meaningful actions on carbon reduction? Because we have had substantial success in the energy sector in particular, and the energy sector is now not one of the big three. It is, it is agriculture, uh, transport, and now um, housing, people's own homes. Uh, so there is a course of work to be done there. Uh, that, will need to, that, that will need to be done to make that real tangible difference. And the question that I have to all of the Assembly colleagues today, will you support me in doing that, or will you just make noises about the environment without actually providing the actions to back up that noise? And that's a challenge that I lay to all of you. I call Rachel Woods for a supplementary. I uh, thank the Minister for his answer, and I agree there is no time for greenwashing. Um, there never was, and certainly there is not any more. Um, the Minister has made announcement and noises about planting 8 million trees, along with a forest for future, but the figures from the Department show that we have a disproportionate reliance on commercial Sitka spruce planting. So can I ask the Minister then, how urgent does he feel the need to plant native broadleaf trees so we can start carbon sequestration? Well, 
you see, Sitka's truce are, are pretty good at carbon sequestration as well. So whilst there may not be my tree of choice, and certainly the trees that I planted uh, many years ago on, on, on my own land were broadleaves, um, I didn't plant them for a commercial interest. I planted them to help the environment. Uh, but you know, planting trees which have a commercial interest um, but have environmental benefits is, is not something that I see as a bad thing. You know, the Forestry Service making £10 million a year, to me, is not a bad thing. So, you know, we, we need to have wood in our lives, whether it's the pencils that you use, um, the bed you sleep in, um, or the floor you walk on. So, you know, planting trees which you actually use to harvest is not a bad thing. And that is the end of our period of questions for today. I would ask the members to take their ease for a few moments before we return to the licensing bill.